Welcome back to another episode of Ancestral Health Radio with your host, James Kevin Broderick. I am super excited, guys. Today's episode is going to be really informative. I hope you have a pen and paper ready. It is with none other than Stolon, the god of plants, Arthur Haynes himself. Uh, It's really exciting because Arthur shares uh, something that's really close to him and something he's very passionate about doing right now, which is essentially buying more land and creating a rewilding haven or this rewilding community that he calls the Human Rewilding Project. It's really exciting because he goes into the 12 principles or the 12 guiding principles, I should say, of the Human Rewilding Project later in this episode. And that's number seven, which is building community on a list of 10 rewilding fundamentals that he and I talk about. So, I hope you really enjoy today's episode, guys. This is 004 with Arthur Haynes on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Arthur Haynes is a forger, ancestral skills mentor, author, public speaker, and botanical researcher. He grew up in the western mountains of Maine, a rural area that was home to swift streams known for their trout fishing, and he spent most of his childhood in the Sandy River Valley hiking, tracking, and foraging. Arthur now runs the Delta excuse me, Delta Institute of Natural History in Canton, Maine, where he teaches human ecology focusing on the values of forging, wildcrafting medicine, and primitive living skills. He continues to spend a great deal of his free time practicing his skills as a modern hunter-gatherer, and as a research botanist for the New England Wildflower Society, Arthur has recently completed a comprehensive flora of the New England region entitled Flora Novae Angeli, and has authored over 20 publications in peer-reviewed journals and books, including naming species of plants new to science. His series of YouTube videos has inspired thousands of people interested in foraging wild edible and medicinal plants. You can learn more about Arthur and what he's up to at ArthurHaines.com. Good morning, Arthur. I'm really excited to have you here today. James, I really appreciate you inviting me to be part of your program. Oh, this is going to be a really exciting episode because uh, it's going to be very in-depth And it's going to give a new perspective to a lot of the audience that I don't think that they've had before because a lot of the people, including myself, are still relatively new to rewilding and ancestral health. Whereas, you know, for me, it's been only a few years that I've been into this. What we're going to discuss today is really exciting because it involves community and how do we find people or at least um, how do we create a culture for those that want to build something like this of their own. Maybe we could start off by you just um, sharing what rewilding is and what exactly that means to you, and then we'll dive into a few of the fundamentals you have for rewilding and save the best for last. Okay, well, James, rewilding is obviously a term that does need to get described, um, but I take kind of a fluid approach to this word because I understand that, one, 
it can mean very different things to very different people. In other words, each landscape is going to require its own solution for what rewilding is about. And two, another important piece of this is people are at different stages along the rewilding path. And so what it means to them at that moment uh, can be different. So with those couple of caveats, I mean, in its simplest form, rewilding is transcending human domestication. In other words, returning to a wild state. And when we look at the qualities that wild humans possessed, you know, things like awareness and sovereignty and equality and an ability to feed themselves from their landscape, um, a deep connection to the land that they were reliant on. And, and with that deep connection came a deep appreciation and a thankfulness, this expression of gratitude for this land. I mean, these are all things that I think about when I'm sort of envisioning this word rewilding. Now, one of the things that I feel is important is for me, rewilding isn't just the end point. In other words, it isn't just people who are living as hunter-gatherers or herder-gatherers or forager horticulturalists. Mm -hmm. um, rewilding should really be looked at as a path. Um, my friend Daniel Vitalis describes it as a trajectory, and I really love that word that he uses to describe this. So in other words, anybody who is moving toward becoming a sovereign human that is not completely dependent on the industry that we find ourselves often immersed in is on this rewilding path somewhere along it. And by thinking of it in that way, it means that we can all be involved in rewilding, including those people that live in urban centers. In other words, it doesn't require wilderness to get started on the rewilding path. Oh, well, that's excellent. And, and that's where I find myself is that I am in this uh, transition phase where I I am in an urban environment, and I'm looking for all strategies, uh, including the mentors that can help teach me these, um, I guess, what you call fundamentals. Maybe we could jump right in by going over a few of the fundamentals that you have here. And beginning with number one, it's immerse yourself in nature. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously at some point along this rewilding path as people want to, again, try to return to this wild state. And, and again, by wild, we're not talking about chaos. Um, remember, wild humans, indigenous people, are amazingly cooperative organisms. Not only do they cooperate within their communities, but they also have cooperative connections with the organisms that they're reliant on within their landscapes. So when I'm using that word wild, I'm hoping that people are not taking our civilized definition of it, which would kind of mean out of control, you know, sort of as the savage would live, um, or at least as we perceive that word. But uh, ultimately, we do have to find ways to immerse ourselves in nature. And this might not be the first thing that we can accomplish. Um, but it's something that we have to do because we have to learn how to observe our world again using all of our senses. Um, we need to start realizing that, you know, the YouTube videos and the movies and these kinds of things that we enjoy watching 
we're really not living firsthand experience. And while they may be important sources of information, we need to be out there having firsthand novel experience again in the natural world. And when we talk about this, uh, James, people get, well, what is natural? Is this city park natural? Is my lawn natural? And and I guess I would argue that there are different degrees of natural Mm -hmm. or naturalness. Um, And what I want is a place with as many cooperative connections in place between the fungi, the trees, the birds, the insects, the mammals, humans. In other words, the more intact that landscape is, the more value it is for us to immerse ourselves in it. And immersing ourselves in nature can also take all kinds of forms. I mean, remembering that we need conscientious exposure to sunlight for the manufacture of not just vitamin D, but also other things like cholesterol sulfate that is responsible for some of the health effects that we attribute to vitamin D. You know, when we immerse ourselves in nature, we're also getting that elemental exposure that's pretty beneficial for our health. So we need to get out of the constructed setting, Mm -hmm. which is out of the home, out of the field, you know, out of the roadways and get into as wild a setting as we possibly can. That's what I'm thinking of when I talk about immerse yourself in nature. It's hard for me to immerse, completely immerse myself in nature other than when I'm out on a trail or I'm doing hiking or I'm, I'm being very intentional about where I'm going and what I'm doing. It's not like I can open my door and there's the forest. You know, I, I have to consciously make it a part of my lifestyle to immerse myself in nature, but I try to do that as much as possible. And for me right now, the reason to get out into nature is that it's mushroom season. So for me, I am doing all that I can to get out as much as I can to search and identify uh, and wildcraft uh, medicinal mushrooms that we have here in the Santa Cruz Mountains. But what what else can we do? Um, Number two on here says learn about natural history. Well, I think when we talk about learning natural history, which is essentially learning about the ecology and the organisms that live in the place where you are, Mm -hmm. we want to think about taking every strategy that's open to us. Um, Those might be academic classes. They might be wildflower walks and Mm -hmm. joining with Audubon to do birding and those kinds of things. Um, Learning from foragers how to identify the plants or the fungi, depending on what the focus of that particular forager is, how to identify those species that can ultimately become part of our medicinal pharmacopoeia and part of our diet. I mean, we really have a a population of people who know very little about the natural world. And, you know, most of us have seen the memes on social media where, you know, children can recognize all these corporate logos, but are unable to recognize extreme, the leaf blade outline of extremely common trees um, that are found, you know, essentially across North America. And we need to fix that. The reality is indigenous people were expert naturalists and they had to be how are you able to find food if you are unable to identify the plants and not just identify them but also know where they grow and what time of year you would be present to gather them when they're at the right stage for collection that's all natural history knowledge 
Um, we need that kind of information to understand even how to be safe on our landscape so that we have an understanding not based on fear, but based on caution, very different things, to understand maybe the venomous insects and reptiles that we have, the plants that can cause dermatitis, local weather patterns that might be uh, a threat to us. I mean, that's all part for me of this um, greater natural history talent that we really lack because we've grown up within a classroom being taught about dates and events that occurred in faraway lands you know mm-hmm. <laughs> my classic one that i love to share james is you know how does knowing the battle of the hastings occurred in 1066 ad how does that help me feed myself from my landscape or clothe myself from my landscape how does that build sovereignty mm. I, I, I just argue it doesn't and natural history is one of the key things that we have an obstacle that we have to overcome for rewilding we need to be able to recognize most everything we see on our landscape and that is, again, uh, a part of my journey. That's that's something I know that obviously is very close to you in your heart, uh, being stolen. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but right. I, you know, f- for me, it's it's a huge learning curve because just as you mentioned that, right? So you mentioned weather and pa- weather patterns, seasonality, bioregionalism, all these things. It's almost like for me, where would I begin? Someone who's looking to become more adept at learning their natural history, I mean, there are so many different avenues, right? Like, so you could become a member of the Fungus Federation of Santa Cruz, like I became. Uh, you could find somebody on a Facebook group to be to act as a mentor, or you could do something entirely different. Is there? Do you have a suggestion or a recommendation for anyone who is looking to become more proficient in learning more about their their uh, bioregional ecology? Well, Maybe- they really need to find people in their region that are skilled at it. And, okay. you know, we're, we live in a period of time where there are specialists, people who may be incredibly amazing identifying birds just from the different calls and songs, but they may not be very good at, at plant-related skills, right. for example. Well, that's okay. Use those as mentors for that topic. Find anybody you can who can show you how to use manuals that allow you to identify things. Of course, you know, if you were to come to me to say learn about plant identification, I live in a state where there's about 2,100 species of plants. I can't show you them all. It would take me a lifetime to do that of driving all over the state. But if I show you the necessary or help you learn the necessary terminology for plant identification and show you how to use a guide or a manual that you could work through to arrive at these identifications, well, then you have an ability to teach yourself. And once you know what the plant is, it becomes, you know, using plants as an example here, it becomes much easier for you to then, whether it's go to the web, go to a social media group, go to a foraging guide that you have purchased and learn how you can use that plant in your life. But it begins, at least with our culture, with learning what it is so that you can learn more about it. Uh, before we can do that, we almost need to move to the next step, which is unlearning domestication. Almost knowing that there is an awareness that we have been domesticated. Isn't that right? Yeah, it is. Um, because in order for people to have a desire, a drive to be part of this rewilding path, they have to understand what has happened to us 
through the process of domestication. And humans, I mean, contemporary people, we really don't like to believe that we're a domesticated form of a wild human. But I mean, we possess all of the qualities of essentially domesticated livestock, things like an altered temperament, an altered diet, an altered social hierarchy, an ability to breed in captivity. I mean, we have all of those features present. I mean, we can even tell if you give uh, a zoologist, essentially, you know, a, a zoologist that specializes in primate anatomy and bone structure, if you give them the bones of a wild human or a modern human who relies on agriculture to feed them, they can actually tell them apart by wow. not just our dentition, but all kinds of other ways, the density of the bones at different points, the stature, all of these kinds of things can be read and we are very different from our wild counterparts. Now we have a lot of amazing things that we've accomplished as a society. And one of the examples I often like to use is the trauma medicine that we have access to. I mean, people can get into serious car accidents and, and essentially be saved and potentially completely recover and go on to have a normal life. We wanna keep that. But what we don't wanna give up is the happiness, the lack of chronic disease, mm -hmm. the lack of cancer that was present in indigenous cultures. We want those things as well. And unlearning domestication is partly about recognizing we're not really necessarily living in the best time ever for humanity. Right. We're Maybe living the, in the a least time. violent time. Well, yeah, we like to say that. Um, and, and I guess... If we just want to focus on human on human violence and use the proportion of people in the population killed, if we twist the statistics, yep, we're living in a pretty nonviolent time. Mm. But if we want to count the actual numbers of people or the people killed per minute, I mean, aren't these valid statistics Absolutely. too? I didn't we're even think very about violent. that. Yeah. And, and if we want to consider the violence that we're perpetrating on the landscape, which is violence on future humans. Right. I mean, future humans will be starving to death because of what we're doing now. You know, yes, we do live in a, you know, in a nation state that has laws and, and allows us to enjoy some freedoms. And I don't dispute any of that, James. But then why are we experiencing depression at an unprecedented rate? Mm -hmm. Well, that comes back to we're missing out on some of the things that wild humans possess that we now lack as domesticated humans. Part of unlearning domestication is opening up our awareness that we have some things that we can learn from past humans. Right. And it's funny that you say that because I noticed from the readings that I do that the indigenous people or indigenous people in general tend to have the emotional side figured out, whereas the environmental side is is off. So their environmental side regarding, you know, where they're going to sleep, their habitat can be very uh, chaotic, but their social ties and their bonds with one another, they're so much stronger than what we have today, whereas, you know, today I could come home to an empty apartment 
you know, whereas that would have never happened in any tribe on the face of, you know, indigenous tribe on the face of the planet. Yes, yes exactly. You know, we, we would have some type of belonging, whereas now we feel kind of isolated and alone. Through unlearning domestication, we kind of take these different paths. And for me, it happened to be something called paleo or the caveman diet, which really turned me on to this. And that leads me to eating wild food and drinking wild water, or as you say, as close to them as you can. Well, the wild food would simply be those plants, animals, fungi, and even bacteria. I mean, we need to eat from all of these kingdoms that live outside of domestication on our wild or at least somewhat wild landscapes. And we have to remember that this is the biologically appropriate diet for Homo sapiens. Most of us only get to experience, well, essentially almost all of humans today, only get to experience bits and pieces of biologically appropriate food, our wild food, because we're all to a degree reliant on agriculture and in some cases, unfortunately, industry mm -hmm. to produce the kinds of food that we bring into our home and consume. And I mean, we're dealing as a result with serious nutritional deficiencies we're dealing with phytochemical deficiencies because we have bred much of the phytochemistry out of the plants that we eat. The water that we drink often has chlorine and fluoride and other chemicals that have been added to it. And I really do wonder how many people know that when chlorine, which is this disinfectant that's placed in water, it's, it's doing an important thing, but when it combines with organic compounds, and that also includes organic life in the water, mm -hmm. it creates what are called disinfection byproducts that are um, absolutely known to cause cancer in humans. So if you drink chlorinated water, you actually have a higher risk of cancer than somebody who is not. And these are the kinds of things that we're not meant to drink water with these kinds of added industrial chemicals in them. And our food is supposed to be free of them as well. And not until we get out there and start consuming a biologically appropriate diet, we will experience the same things that cows experience, for example, when they are fed a diet that is almost entirely of grain. Cows are not supposed to eat grain and they get ill as a result of eating this diet. And then of course we eat their flesh and assume that we'll be healthy. We need to go back to eating what we're supposed to be eating um, to the degree that we all can. And that's mm -hmm. wild food and drinking wild water. Water that is free of chemistry is free of processing, such as a spring. And that's it. that was exactly what I was gonna ask. Where, where would we get or procure this wild food and wild water? The water part is, for me, is exactly what you said. I use Daniel's uh, website, findaspring.com, and I'm fortunate enough to have two springs near my house, which are maybe an hour away Excellent. from me. Um, but as for the wild food part, I'm still in the transition phase. So I'm going to continue to say that because that's a big part of what I think this this podcast is going to be about is, is uh, catering to people who are in the transition culture, as I like to call it. James, we're going to be transitioning for generations. Right. And it, I mean, it took us it took us many generations to reach the state that we're in now. And it is completely unrealistic to think that, you know, we're going to study the environment for a couple of years and then go back to living wild. So I'm totally with you. And I love the way you describe that. I just I hope that people realize this transition phase 
is going to be a while. Right. And as I've heard Daniel say, too, in um, some of his podcasts, that it's it's generational. You'll notice when you began this particular uh, topic, the wild food and wild water, or as close to them as you can, one of the really important things that I try to share with people is if you can't forage for wild plants and wild mushrooms and hunt for wild animals, then go as close to them as you can. In other words, emulate wild foods. I'll give just a couple of examples. Eating massive sweet fruits that lack seeds, those are fruits that have been transformed through breeding, which is a form of genetic modification, as far away from their wild progenitor as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're very unlike the wild progenitor that might have been eaten in the wild as this wild food. So find plants in the supermarket, for example, that still look like their wild counterparts. A great example is a blueberry. Cultivated blueberries are different than wild blueberries. They, there's some losses of phytochemistry. There's a greater size, which comes with a loss of fiber and some things like this, but they're pretty close. We know that they still have a lot of health benefits. They still have their seeds. Um, they still have some of their phytochemistry intact. And so what we do is we look for things that are minimally modified. Another example would be instead of eating iceberg lettuce, find leaf lettuce that's closer to the wild progenitor of lettuce or find mustard greens and things that have much stronger taste because that's the phytochemistry you're experiencing that does all kinds of wonderful things to us, including preventing and fighting cancer. And when it comes to eating animals, eat animals that are eating a biologically appropriate diet. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I'm going to eat beef, I'm going to eat beef that was grass-fed, not beef that was grain-fed. If I'm going to eat chicken, I want those, those birds for their own sanity and health, not just for mine, to have been out running around on pasture eating insects and green plants, in addition to the amount of grain that they may have been um, fed by the farmer. But I want them to be eating the things that the wild ancestor of chicken would have been eating. Mm -hmm. And so I emulate wild foods in this way when I can't be eating truly wild foods. I see it is there's kind of three phases I see people taking. So the first phase would be you're interested, you're learning about it, so you're heading to the grocery store. The second phase is, okay, you've you, you're, you're more into it and you're realizing you're trying to get more back to, I guess, the source. So you start shopping farmer's markets and you buy, start buying things locally and bioregionally. And then that's where I'm at, where I'm trying to now make take the next step to where yourself and Daniel are at, where now I'm trying to learn about archery, I'm learning about the uh, the wild protein that are that's here on my landscape, and exactly the seasons that that I can do that and just trying to get connected with the people that do that again, finding the mentors that can help me make this transition a lot easier. But for me, it's again, although I may be eating domesticated beef and chicken, at least that beef and chicken was raised humanely. And it was as you say, eating its biologically adaptive diet. I talked to Frank Forensich on an earlier episode, and he has an approach called the long body, where he says it's not necessarily your nutrition or your movement, but it is also your habitat and tribe. And 
that's something that we haven't talked about and that I, I haven't heard you talk about very much either is, is actually wild movement or this, you know, huge nat, quote unquote natural movement. Um, I don't know, paradigm that's been going on in the health scene right now. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's, that's a really huge part of rewilding is actually strengthening our bodies. And I don't mean going to the gym and pumping iron. I'm not saying that has no value, but I'm talking about building a skeleton and a musculature that is adapted to living on our environment, on our landscape again. Um, I, I, you know, I often refer to it as wild movement or feral movement Mm. and it's not about just going out and recreating, recreating, right? Going out and just moving in the out of doors, but it's actually doing tasks that further your life in the out of doors. Um, I mean, I certainly love to climb mountains, but even better if I were to climb a mountain at a particular time when the blueberries, the mountain cranberries, the crowberries, and other wild fruits are in season, and I go up there and I pick. So not only did I get this aerobic conditioning and my legs gain strengthening, but I'm doing other movements as well, like a flat-footed squat Mm -hmm. while I'm picking. And my arms are moving, doing motions that Americans don't do that much anymore. We've really outsourced a lot of our movement. I was thinking of that today. We were uh, grinding up the breast and leg meat of a wild turkey. And I'm using a hand grinder for that. Mm-hmm. That's, again, movement that we've outsourced. We let butcher shops do all of that kind of movement for us. So wild movement, I like to think of it as not just gaining and becoming a physically strong person with strong bones and agility and endurance, but also regaining these outsourced movements. And so... And that's that's something that I think about also is that when you go out into nature, just like you said, it's all encompassing. It's all encompassing in the fact that in my case, if I'm searching for, um, you know, Hiracum, you know, I'm searching for lion's mane out out on a dead tree stump. I've got to go in, you know, off the trail down the side of a hill and I've got to make sure that I'm steady. And then there's going to be a giant tree that might have fallen in front of me. I've got to duck, go under that as cautiously as possible without hurting myself. And then finally, I can get to this prize, which is this beautiful medicinal mushroom that I found. And that could only have been possible with natural movement, quote unquote, natural movement, which is really just a, a byproduct of rewilding. It's a byproduct of this um, of this entire movement, just like I feel each one of these bullet points are. You simply need to be practicing rewilding to be practicing every single one of these these aspects uh, holistically. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it, James. So I have number seven here, which we haven't talked about, which is being part of a real community. I just want to let the audience know that um, I'm going to save that one for last because Arthur has some really exciting things to share with us. So I'm going to move on right now to what he calls or what is called hormesis. Yeah, I mean, hormesis is a way of strengthening, in this case, the human body through, excuse me, uh, through small doses of something that causes stress. Mm. Uh, Physical exercise is something that creates hormesis. It's It's this hormetic experience. And what it does is when we 
perform exercise and we get tired and cause this microscopic damage to our body, when we heal back, we're stronger. And now we can actually do even more physical, um, physical exercise. And through this process of conditioning ourselves, taking something that if we were to jump to trying to run a marathon without having gone through enduring these gradually increasing doses of you know, this physical stress to our body, we'd be severely injured potentially if we were to run an entire marathon coming off the couch, so to yeah. speak. But gradually building up the experience of physical stress, our body becomes stronger. Um, really, in many ways, a suntan is a type of hormesis. In other words, if I were to go out in the spring, coming out of the winter here in Maine, where we have to wear a lot of clothing, and just lay in the sun for hours, I would receive a really serious amount of damage from the sunlight. But if I do this conscientiously with gradually increasing doses of sunlight to my naked skin, my body becomes accustomed to it by increasing pigmentation that protects me from the sun. And all the while, I'm getting really tremendous benefit from this. Hormesis is just a way that we gain strength. And the reason that I included this is because contemporary humans, all of us, are really bad at enduring discomfort. We have the ability to avoid it whenever we want to. We can turn the thermostat to change the temperature exactly when we want. If we don't want to go outside, many of us can stay inside and we can just avoid all discomfort. And I want to be clear that hormesis isn't about living this masochistic lifestyle where you're just always in discomfort, but it's about recognizing that a occasional and temporary discomfort can be really beneficial for allowing us to be more comfortable ultimately on our landscapes. I mean, let's face it, because we are unable to endure discomfort, we purchase all kinds of things to keep us comfortable. And in doing so, the manufacturers of those products do tremendous harm to our landscapes. And we just have to sit back and watch it happen because we need those comforts. I had never really thought about it like that. that and that... so hormesis is a way that we actually gain a strength to be comfortable on our landscape and not have to do more damage to our world as a result of not being able to endure it. I once heard uh, also from Frank Forensich that, that the average human spends somewhere near up to near 70 years of their life inside. So... Uh, from one environmentally controlled atmosphere to another. That's so, exactly it, James. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, to me, it just sounds like practicing hormesis or or um, enduring these acute stressors is essentially just a way for my body to adapt to what it was naturally good at to begin with. Something that I lost. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and now this is something that has a, a special importance to me is treat altered states of consciousness with respect. Because I know that I didn't get to go too much into my personal story with you when we spoke before this interview. But you, if you do listen to the very first episode of Ancestral Health Radio, I do go into that. But uh, altered states of consciousness with respect um, was something that I was not very good at growing up. You know, I grew up in, in an atmosphere where, um, I guess, 
not definitely these things were not called entheogens. They weren't used for any type of uh, medicinal purpose or spiritual act. It was simply recreation, you know. Um, uh, unfortunately, I got into a lot of trouble with drugs when I was younger, and it has uh, deeply impacted my life today. How can can you talk about like how people in the rewilding community or who are interested in maybe exploring this arena might treat these entheogens or altered states with respect? I mean, to me, it's absolutely vital. Um, when we're talking about entheogens, you know, we're talking about plants, fungi, and animals that are capable of producing an altered state in the human. And I, as a, as a scientist, used to really condemn these things until I experienced firsthand the value of entheogens, these substances that can generate the divine within. I mean, these really are very powerful teachers. Um, there's growing a, a growing body of evidence showing how people are able to use these in a variety of ways, not just for healing depression and anxiety, but even being used in the treatment of other chronic diseases uh, and even cancer. And of course, they have been used by most of the indigenous groups around the world. And that's what actually got me looking at these in a more serious way. If all these people around the world used these teacher plants or fungi or animals for their benefit, what am I missing out on? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I did not want to use these to escape my reality, but to help me better understand what I was experiencing, and how I could make substantive changes in my life. And for me, dealing with these teacher plants with respect is about ceremony, going into it, asking the plant for its medicine, and even offering gratitude when the, um, when the experience has ended. Setting up that set and setting that you often hear about and really taking the entire event seriously and also having time between our interactions with teacher plants so that we have time to debrief and really understand what's been shown to us. You know, sort of doing these week after week after week, knowing uh, from me personally, I'm, I'm sometimes still learning from these months later. Um, and I need that length of time to be able to really fully comprehend everything that has been shown to me. And so for me to just sort of launch into the next one before I've even finished processing the last one is not how I respect entheogens. Um, right. And that will be different for each person. Um, but treating these things as really incredibly special and powerful teaching elements of our landscape is the only way I think we move forward with getting the full value from entheogens. Right, and, and one of the value of entheogens is feeling more connected with one's landscape, right, with, with your local ecology, with others around you. And that ties into um, exactly what we're going to speak into next, which is, which is experience spirituality directly. You know, this is... Um, can be a touchy subject for some people when you when you mention the word spirituality, but uh, I love the quote that, um, I, and you know, I forget who says this. I will post this in the show notes, guys, but um, I believe in God 
only I call it nature. And that's uh, one of the quotes that I, I absolutely love, and I will find who said that. But um, spirituality, I think, is found with practicing a lot of these. Uh, it, it, I, I kind of see where why you put it as number 10 on the list, because it kind of ties everything else together. Because spirituality is what I see is at the heart of rewilding, and at the heart of all this is, is really feeling connected or, or the type of relationships you, you have with others and other things around you. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm obviously a, a huge proponent of sovereignty and self-reliance. And for me, it doesn't mean that we can't learn about spirituality from elders or people that have studied this topic a lot. But I don't want them positioned between me and creation. Mm. My spirituality and my interaction with the earth and the cosmos is for me to determine how that will play out, and how um, I'm going to ultimately interpret everything that's going on around me. And simply letting a, a religious bureaucracy tell you this is how it is, is really anti-rewilding. You're still just being subordinate to someone else. And, and if we remember that you know, human communities were very much about egalitarianism. In other words, an equality for all people, regardless of their roles, their ages, their genders within the community. I mean, it's the same thing. I'm not going to give up my sovereignty to some kind of bureaucracy who tells me this is the way that I need to view the world. And let's keep in mind, you know, there was a time when humans considered not just that things were imbued with spirit, but almost we could say that everything was spirit. Mm -hmm. And now we live in a time where most major religions consider humans to be the only ones to possess spirit. And in a sense, as we've become domesticated, we could describe it that the spirit content of the world, as we perceive it, has actually been diminished. By, by perceiving that only humans are the special ones. And that's a kind of inequality amongst creation that I have a really difficult time with. Um, and, and that's why I'm really big into experiencing spirituality directly with creation. And so when you say experiencing it directly with creation, what exactly does that mean? What what's does that mean? Um, going out and and identifying wild plants for you specifically, or is it connecting with another individual? Or how how exactly do you find define that? I mean, for you, Arthur, specifically, how would you define your spirituality? Um, I, I guess I would define it over a range of things. Um, it is my day to day living. I mean, can can we not walk in spirit? as we move about on our landscapes, getting the very things that we need to keep ourselves alive, our mm -hmm. food, our water, potentially our medicine. Uh, it involves those times where I'm practicing gratitude. And it's like, well, who are you offering gratitude to? Well, I don't need to name it as God or anything else. I'm simply offering gratitude to my existence, to this world that's been created for us. Whoever, whatever created it, it's it's irrelevant to me in many ways. Um, I don't need to name it. 
I just want to offer gratitude that I'm here to celebrate existence in the unique way that a human can. And of course, through the use of entheogens, I mean, we can witness some pretty amazing things. We can see divine entities, potentially, depending on where people are in their journey with entheogens. And so there's a whole range of ways that some people might describe as even relatively mundane that we can use to practice our own spirituality. I know it's, you know, and as you said that I was just thinking about, you know, reductionalism and how, you know, we do like to compartmentalize absolutely every aspect of our life, whether that be from awareness meditation, yes. from, I mean, taking supplements to whatever it is, we, we like to put things in pretty little bundles with bows on them. I'm still learning a lot of these practices. I'm still finding my own spirituality, but I am finding that exactly as you mentioned, just through nature. Hey guys, real quick, now that I have your attention, could you do me a quick favor? After this episode, would you email me your answers to these two questions? Question number one, what is your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health and or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? What people, books, or websites do you follow? That is it. Again, number one, what is your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health and or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? Guys, you can email me your answers after the show at james at ancestralhealthradio.com. So let's go into it. Let's let's really kind of dig deep into community what what you're really excited about right now i'm personally really pumped about this because this is a, an aspect of the rewilding community that i don't think is spoken about very often and i have a few people that are actually interested in this and, and have a few questions that uh responded to me on facebook so if you want to kind of just dive into uh, what a real community or what a real rewilding community to you looks like um that would be that would be beautiful well, James, I'm, um, maybe it's important to preface this with a couple of, of things. One mm -hmm. is I'm getting ready to release a book. Um, it's titled A New Path. And in that, I have an entire chapter on community based on what our, what our wild communities look like and what our contemporary communities look like and trying to at least give people the overarching picture so that they can be looking for these aspects of real community. And the other thing is, um, I'm also in the process of purchasing more and more land. Um, and the goal here is to actually build, construct, uh, entice uh, a rewilding community to be formed here in the western mountains of Maine. Um, with the land that I'm buying now, we're at about 150 acres, so we now have space for other families to come be with us. And we wanna set up a community based on essentially a set of principles that we're using to guide how we'll form this community and how we'll live through the generations with this community. So with those couple of things in mind, um, from this book, A New Path, uh, I'm actually gonna give you the definition of community that I use in it. Um, and maybe that's a good place to start. Absolutely, that, that, that sounds great. So a community is a small group of people who reside, sometimes loosely, on a given landscape, 
share common resources, experience equality and similar affluence between the genders, even though they may each do different tasks, and can operate by consensual decisions due to similarities in beliefs for the benefit of the group to accomplish living in their place. I'm going to contrast that with how a society operates. A society is a large group of people who live over an expansive area, compete amongst one another for the common resources, experience inequality and wealth disparity between genders or other social classes, often can't operate by consensus due to dissimilar beliefs and goals. Rather, decision-making is by majority or minority rule and often move forward on actions that benefit only a small segment of the people. Oh, man. Wow. I'm, I'm going to have to take a little bit to digest all that because that is um, that was a great contrast. I'm going to dive into these 12 principles that we're hoping to use to build a small community of people who will live in close connection with their landscape. And I think that will help flesh things out a bit. Okay. Okay. And real quick, how did you come up with these ideas? Uh, was this uh, a single effort? Did you um, have other families involved in this or? No, I mean, this is everything that I'm telling you here has really come about by studying our wild ancestors okay. by extensive study of hunter gatherer groups. And noting what they had that we don't anymore. Okay, well, I'm, I'm personally, I'm really excited. So, please delve in. Okay, the the very these are in no particular order, and there, like I said, there are twelve of them here. The first guiding principle, if you will, um, that's listed is participation. Mm -hmm. And one way to describe what participation means is really to say that this is opposed to production. In other words, we want to be part of the ecology of place rather than actively modifying our landscape to elevate the carrying capacity of the land. So in doing this, participation is about participating in the wild ecology that we're surrounded in. We're going to hunt and gather to the extent that we can. We're going to craft clothing from our landscape to the extent that we can. It's an eco-centered mindset rather than an ego-centered one. And while we'll certainly would need to use some agriculture and potentially animal husbandry, you know, to feed ourselves, what we want to do is not rely on those things because that's based on production. And production changes the mindset. If I can just do this, if I can just do that, I can make more here, I can make more there, then we can build more homes. And it's, no, we want to participate in the way that wild humans had in their landscapes using ecological principles rather than more modern production-centered principles. Right. Number two, egalitarianism, that all people in the community, and for that matter, outside of the community, are equal. And this is, again, equality amongst genders, ages, and roles in the community. And once we recognize that we're all equal, we might also say then that we all have equal responsibility for ourselves so that, in other words, all people in the community are considered sovereign. And that includes the young people, that they are treated as sovereign humans. In other words, if I can't hit an adult, 
And that would be considered an appropriate, an inappropriate way to deal with some transgression we're having. Then it's inappropriate for me to strike a child because they have all the same rights and privileges that the adult does. If I can't yell at an adult to solve a problem, I shouldn't be yelling at a child and so on. So egalitarianism isn't just equality amongst men and women, but also amongst the different age groups and the different things that people do, um, the different roles that they take in the community. Right. So one isn't above another. And regardless of age, sex, creed, whatever it is, we are all on the same playing field. On number three, consensual decision making. Because all people are equal, (laughs) number two, egalitarianism, All people have a say in the decision-making, particularly those important things that will affect the community. What do we do here? Will we be cutting wood there for firewood? Will we be raising goats? And if so, where will they be raised? Um, What are we going to do? Um, We have a new family, and how are we going to make sure that they have a place to live, and where will that place be? Um, You know, while everybody has a say, That's not to suggest that somebody who is very skilled in a field shouldn't be presenting the nuances so that everyone can have more information on which to build, you know, an important decision or to make um, a quality decision. Mm -hmm. And we often, I think, have this idea that elders are the one who make the decision. And that's not what we're doing here. Elders do not govern. They simply adjust consensus. They bring up points that younger members or less experienced members might not have been aware of. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, consensus changes because the person said, you're right. I had never thought of those things and I completely understand what you're doing now. And I want to offer my consensus because you've helped me see something that was invisible to me before. Again, circling back to egalitarianism. Yes, Uh, Number four, a reciprocal gift economy. So a gift economy is obviously the giving of things. And in particular, we're talking about harvest sharing, the giving of food and medicine and material items to members of the community. Now, what's really important about a reciprocal gift economy is it does not necessarily involve that, you know, person A gives to person B and then person B has to give back to person A. Right. Person B may give to C or to D, and eventually E and F might give back to A. In other words, there's this complex web of gift and harvest sharing that's going on based on um, an, an equal division and needs, different needs that people have to make sure that all are cared for in the community. Um you know, and and obviously, as we get started, we might even to be needing to give gifts of fiat currency, you know, money to people for them to be able to get to a place of home building or whatever it is so that they can try to step outside of the industrial world as much as they can. But we're really going to focus on sharing. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be sharing everything, but that we're going to be sharing a lot more than, say, a typical village community would in the United States. You know, as you're as you're talking about all this, I'm running through all these scenarios in my head. So let's James, it's important to keep in mind that harvest sharing is one of the defining characteristics of hunter gatherer cultures, The, the cultures where people felt 
contentedness, happiness, that their gifts were appreciated by the members of their tribe. Harvest sharing breaks down when indigenous people are acculturated and they begin to have jobs. And what immediately Mm -hmm. happens is the saving, which is a euphemism for hoarding of money, begins. And those harvest, those sharing networks break down. And with that comes depression, a loss of feeling like you're part of something greater. I mean, this has been witnessed in group after group after group who have been acculturated and start working rather than going through hunting and gathering. Harvest sharing is so vital because of the good feelings that not only the receiver gets, but also the person who's giving, who's providing for members of our community. A community doesn't work without some kind of extensive sharing going on. How would the sharing work exactly? Would there be, um, so for example, would the men be typically hunting on a daily basis, whereas perhaps the women might be out foraging? Or Well, in, in, his, in historical cultures, yes. In the rewilding community we build, who knows? I mean, we... It depends. Are we going to be hunting with wooden bows or are we going to be hunting with technology like, you know, a pulley bow that allows someone who might not have the same physical strength as a large male to still um, cast an arrow with lethal velocity? So I don't really care who does the hunting, but the the details of the sharing would be determined by the group. For example, let me give. Let me give um, an example, and a real example. If we look at the Zhukwasi, using the uh, a close pronunciation there, these are the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert. Mm-hmm. These folks had very specific foods that were shared and some that were not. Many plant foods, for example, were not necessarily shared widely. They were um, eaten by the people who gathered them within that sort of household. However, certain foods were always shared and they had a very specific way of doing it. So that you don't have one successful hunter come back who's always getting game and sort of sharing it in a disproportionate way, Mm -hmm. um, maybe sharing it with family or with close friends a little bit more. They had a way of dealing with this and it was the owner of the arrow who would divide up the meat from the kill. And the hunter had a number of different arrows owned by different people in, in this case, his quiver. And so as he went out and he killed game, the owner of the arrow was given the game and they would divide it up. And the next time that successful hunter had somebody else's arrow. It may have been a woman. It may have even been somebody who was incapable of walking great distances on to go hunting because of an injury. But they had very specific ways to make sure that the sharing was completely fair. And we might build into um, our community principles like this to make sure that sharing is done in a fair way. A beautifully illustrated story there, and I had no idea about that. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And, And likewise, the same people while many plant foods were not necessarily widely shared, or at least it was not an obligation to share them, um, it was different. The nuts that they gathered from their landscape were shared, but the person who divided them up was the owner of the bag, the, the hide sack, huh. that 
um, the nuts were put into. So somebody could spend hours gathering and would simply hand them over to the owner of the bag who would then divide them up amongst the community members. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I love that idea. I think that's uh, definitely something that's missing. That's something that I feel in today's culture too, that, you know, I'm always noticing that around me where people are just, I use the word compassion a lot, you know, yes. I feel that, that yeah. people are lacking in compassion for other human beings because of the rush that culture presses upon us, the need to make money, those type of things that you mentioned earlier. So when you say that, it, it just, uh, when you're talking about this, I'm, I'm like almost going off into a different place because I'm so excited. I'm daydreaming about this, <laughs> this little community you, you that you're talking about. Both, so James. It, it yeah, just sounds really, both, it, it sounds magical. Some... I mean, cause it sounds like you're mixing yeah. both of both, both worlds. And it, it, it's, it just sounds so beautiful to me. So where, where else do we go from there? So um, uh, a gather, a sharing work. community. In other words, we all bear scars from the society that we've been immersed in. It's very egocentric. It's very selfish. We bear scars from the parenting that has been inflicted on us. Uh, the parenting that we receive today looks nothing like the parenting that we are biologically intended to receive. And it impacts our ability to express gratitude, to be in loving relationships, to even take ownership of the things that we have done that may hurt other people. And so personal work is needed because we need each person to make an effort toward improving their physical, emotional, and spiritual selves. Somebody who wants to come in, who is going to be carrying baggage from society and wants to do nothing to work on this, essentially wants everyone else to accept them exactly as they are, and they never have to evolve, transcend, that's not what we're looking for. We want people who can be radically honest and be saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I did that, I'm at fault here, and this is why, and I need my community to help me move past that. Right, and I, I remember hearing the story of, um, I forget what, which tribe it was, but it, 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 was, it went something like, uh, if a young member of the tribe had done something that, that put shame on the rest of his family, they would bring that young gentleman or, or woman, whoever it was, into the center of the tribe, and they would mourn. They would mourn for this person, but together. You know, it wasn't like uh, they were going to haze or, 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 or discipline this person, but it was more of like, we're coming together to share this responsibility or this emotion together. Yeah, this, this is not to point fingers and ridicule. This is literally to help our community be stronger. Oh, God, I love that. So, so what else is on the list? Number seven, shared goals and faith. In other words, we want a community that is bound by a sense of common purpose. The knowledge that all work for the same goal is, is really capable of creating not just unity, but inspiration to get through difficult times. I mean, human communities have always experienced some form of stress, um, some form of hardship. That's normal. And those things can be uniting. They don't have to be dividing. Uh, this isn't business networking. In other words, we don't take somebody on in the community when they're supporting us. And then when they start having trouble, we cut them loose. That's what businesses do. Mm. You know, the company mm -hmm. goes through a downturn. 
and it lays off, you know, 2000 employees. That's not what a community is about. So this is not networking, um, just to be really, really clear. And of course, a community will have some shared financial um, expenses. There will be road maintenance and property taxes and things that unfortunately we we, there are some creative solutions to get past these things, but initially these are things that will have to be dealt with um, because we live in a world where there's going to be a government expecting these things from us. Um, and the shared goals and shared fate will all bond together um, to make sure that our community is protected from these things. And, you know, I'm looking at the Facebook page right now, and there is somebody that asked a question. Um, and I hope that I get her name correctly, or or his name. It's uh, uh, Samayel Mar. But um, this person says, like so many movements, the current laws, and I think this fits into what you were just talking about, that the current laws of civilization are opposed to certain aspects of rewilding. How exactly are you going to kind of get around those legal barriers when creating this rewilding well, haven? Well, it to some extent we are, and to some extent we're not. Um, we, we can't, our community can't take on the United States government, nor do we need to. The point is, is that people are experiencing only such small bits and pieces of community on a daily basis that we're all impacted by this. But if we can have a place where most days we are fully immersed within a community of loving and sharing people, people who are bound by that sense of common fate, who work together to share things, to make sure that we come together for celebrations and things of this nature, that we are going to be bolstered in our health. No difference, no different at all than if a person who's eating really crappy industrial food switches over to organic produce, switches over to, you know, free range animals, they're still kind of bound by industry, mm -hmm. but they're definitely making an impact on their health and the health of the planet because animals raised in those fashions are less damaging to the world and plants raised in those fashions. And so this is much the same. We're going to be building, um, I don't want to describe it as a bubble, but essentially a sphere of influence where we can walk within community and feel it every single day. And what we may need to do is to build a nonprofit organization that the community operates through to escape property taxes and some of the other regulations that would be affecting individuals um, as you and I live right now, we have all of these obligations that we need to deal with. A community doesn't necessarily all need to have separate vehicles. We could have just a few that we all use. And now we've got just that much less bureaucracy and regulation to deal with. We can't escape it, but we can shield ourselves from a lot of it by spending time with our community members. If you don't have an existing health issue, well, then, of course, you want to take care of your health. You know, you want to exercise and you want to be eating healthy so that it's preventative. We don't want to have to get to this situation and then realize, oh, no, where do we go from here? So I see you kind of taking that preemptive. Um, yes. Preemptive action and really kind of taking it upon yourself to make sure that 
Because, I mean, if we look at history, we can clearly see that most civilizations don't end up very well. They, somewhere down the line, they're, they're just not sustainable. So for you to be creating something like this rewilding haven, and I'm using that term rewilding haven from um, Peter Michael Bauer. He has that uh, term that he, I think he, he's taken from his, um, his, fr his friend from the College of Mythic Car Cartography. And um, yeah, it, and, and I had a question about that too. So is it going to be something like um, a hoop culture type um, situation? So you're going to have a lot of this land. You said how many acres? Well, currently, um, when I'm finished paying for the last piece here, we'll be at 150 acres, but wow. I'm going for lots more. Okay, yeah. And so with 150 acres, do you plan on setting up, I guess, encampments or different areas within um, that space where you can <coughs> move uh, seasonally or migrationally? Um, no, um, we're really trying to keep our sprawl close and that, okay. and that sort of actually leads into, um, you know, the, the other one here, number eight is village and population where the community will be comprised of a, a relatively low number of households. And that way we ensure that the land isn't overworked. Okay. We don't yet have enough land to really be moving around to different encampments, but yet the foods available in the season will dictate our movements oh. because we'll be moving to this ridge line or to this river floodplain. We'll still be experiencing seasonal movement, but not necessarily to different village sites, not until we have a lot more land. Um, right now, what we're trying to do is cluster the homes. Um, when I say cluster them, they're you know a couple hundred yards apart, um, maybe a little bit further. One's positioned behind this band of trees one's just over the ridge from this one and that way we're close it's it's a two-minute walk between the homes but yet we have our privacy mm -hmm. we're going to need that in the transition but we also have that that privacy for us to work out issues with a partner um, for our sexual intimacy for whatever for even our, our spiritual and ceremonial um intimacy, I'll call it, where we want privacy for some of the ways that we interact with our landscape. And so we're keeping everything close, but yet just far enough apart so that we're not all in each other's space all the time. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, I mean, that low population density is really important, James. If, if we were to look at what population densities were historically, we're talking about, and these are based on estimates that have been done for a large number of groups, 0 0.005 all the way to 2.5 people per square kilometer. That's typically what we saw in hunter-gatherer groups. But if we look at you know, the United States now as a whole, 34 people per square kilometer and places like New Jersey 467 people per square kilometer we we want to keep the village population low so that anytime there is some stress people have lots of place lots of space where they can go and allow tense feelings to calm down and come back and you know make that reconnection with the people and that's really hard to do when you're packed into a tiny area do you have a number in mind as a matter of fact for maybe perhaps the number of families that you're looking to incorporate into the the haven 
No, because it will change as we buy more land. Okay, of course um, But right now we're probably looking to, for right now, a couple of small homes, a couple of families um, in addition to the people that live here to begin with. And so with these homes, are you guys building these homes yourself or are you um, – how is that going to take place? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a builder of primitive shelters. I'm not a home builder. I mean I can certainly drive nails and put screws in. But um, no, the homes – there's a home that existed here when we brought the property and one that was built um, by family and by a friend. And we would simply use a lot of that pitching in and helping out kind of thing. But there would need to be uh, potentially some financial investment to get the small home started for people. Um, but we're willing to work on all kinds of things. That is not the only solution. Right. And I mean, I, number number nine is self-reliance. And eventually that's something that we might want to move toward is being able to build more of these, you know, they're relatively permanent structures that will house people and protect them from the elements. And that's going to be a really important part of our community sovereignty is having self-reliance all of the skills that we need for living. And that doesn't include just hunting and gathering and making brain tan buckskin and napping stone points and making hunting weapons and right. primitive fishing. It includes the medicine, but it also includes the things um, that we need when we interface with the rest of the world. I mean, we live on a fragmented landscape, even here in Maine with so much forest. It's still fragmented and we find ourselves driving to fishing locations, to really cool foraging locations. And we'll want somebody who's potentially really good with vehicles um, to help make sure that we can keep something running because it's going to be a tool that we require. Mm -hmm. And that was that was another question that I was going to ask is, is there a pre excuse me, a prerequisite to joining? Do you need a certain skill or how does that work? No, do you need just an no, interest it, in rewilding? It's really not or? like that. It, I mean, a lot of the primitive living skills are things that I can share with the people. And mm -hmm. so we can gain them. It's really a personality and a desire to work hard and be open with your heart. Those are going to be some of the most important qualities. Well, those are some of the best qualities, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so number 10, James, is the land held in common. This is crucial. Communities all have this in common. In fact, if this is not the case, everything that we call a community in the United States, I do not believe it actually is. Um, if you look at what somebody might say, oh, here's our community within this particular town, but yet it's all private land ownership and... I mean, not to mention if you lose your job and lose your home, it's not necessarily that your community comes to your rescue. You might have to move away two states away to go live with family or something like that. Like that did not fulfill many of the critical parts of a definition of at least the original human communities. So in other words, all this land that I'm buying, I have to relinquish ownership of it and give it to everybody because the only way people are going to feel that they are bound to this landscape is the, if they have equal ownership in the land. Oh, I love that. The land must be held in common for it to be an actual community. And so have you gotten many people or, or has there been – have you gotten many emails from people asking whether or not uh, this this is available? Like can they come visit you? Can they see this? Um, see I'm just starting doing? to get those. 
James, just a few, because I haven't really mentioned this widely. I mean, this is really the biggest discussion of it that I've had to put out there into public, and I'm happy to get all requests. We're really looking for people that when we have a chance to be together and spend time and talk, it's very clear that we're on the same page um, with these principles and two more that I'll mention. Um, you know, the 11th one is peacemaking. In the United States, here in this contemporary society, when we have a dispute, we're looking for an assignment of blame and a payment of damages of some kind, which obviously destroys the relationship. And in fact, healing the relationship was never actually a goal in a United States court. That's not what we're trying to do. Who's to blame isn't really what's most important to us, is that we want a return to the previous relationship. That's what's most important. In other words, we want to heal relationships with the peacemaking that we use when a dispute arises. And in some traditional communities, there are examples of people who did absolutely nothing wrong, but were yet accidentally involved in something that affected people's lives and made payments, even though they were not to blame, simply to make sure that the relationships returned to that normal level where everyone was friendly. And I was blown away by reading about these kinds of things where peacemaking was about relationship and not about payment of damages. And that's the kind of peacemaking we want to use, where people are so committed to a community and living with each other that they're willing to go that extra step to make sure that we can come together and embrace each other again. Oh, God. That's what I want. I want that right there as well, too. I want compassion for one another. I want us all to come together under the same umbrella and kind of, you know, recognize our strengths, our faults, and just kind of put them aside. And let's come together under this umbrella of rewilding. Yes. Um, and the 12th one for our guiding principles of this rewilding community are consequences. And that's a strange word to maybe use at first, but when it's described, it'll make sense. We want a community that's forward-thinking and evaluates the impact of various practices on future generations. In other words, what are the consequences they are going to have to live with? We want to leave the world in at least as good a place as we came into it, preferably better. This necessitates sort of a special attention that we give to the education that we use to prepare not just the youth, but the adults for what we might describe as an eco-centered living. Mm -hmm. And we also need to think about when our community interacts with the world outside of it. In other words, we're not going to be able to manufacture every single thing we need for existence. And so let's use an example. You know, if we go to purchase clothing, well, who made that clothing? How was the cloth manufactured? What about the plant fibers or the animal fibers that went into making it? How were those organisms raised and what impacts were presented to the earth and future humans as a result of that clothing that we purchased? Like we're thinking about that and it's important to us that 
we're thinking about the consequences of our actions, not just now, but on future humans and future other than human persons. Oh, so it's just the big picture is what I'm hearing. Because I, so just just as an idea, I, I actually purchased some Ancestral Health Radio t-shirts, but I'm realizing that I don't know if I want to give them away because they're not, this is, sounds so funny, but they're not organic cotton, right? So I try to actually give one away to somebody that I, I noticed was really excited about the launch. And then they post that question and it had never even entered my mind. I never even thought about, oh, where, where did the fiber from this shirt come from? You know, how exactly did I get this into my hands? You know, what, what, what is the ink made out of even on this shirt? I have no idea. So it's nice that you guys have really gotten, or at least you have gotten into all the details of figuring even the minutia out like that. That's, I mean, I, I honestly had not even thought about that. Yeah. And, and it's hard because we're not trained from our schooling to think about those kinds of things, James. And it requires us to start literally thinking about every single thing that we do throughout the day. And we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. I mean, here you and I are communicating across the internet on a computer. And, and people, if, if you want to attack the hypocrisy of that, you're totally welcome to do that. I, I understand that there has to be some necessary departures from rewilding here because there's no way to get this word out if i sit here and say to heck with all of you i'm going to go live in this eco-centered manner and live as lightly on this planet as possible the rest of the world the rest of humanity will essentially tear the planet down around me yeah and it's it's only through offering this kind of information, not forcing it on people, but offering it to those people who are receptive to it, that we build a stronger choir and people who become more motivated to see how much lighter they can live and how much better a job they can start thinking about integrating with the ecology of their place. And so, you know, that's why we're here, James. Um, you're here trying to put this word out in a format that people are using right now. I don't have any issue with that, but it also doesn't mean that I need to be filling up my home with electronics of all kinds, with all these rare earth minerals and, and really leading to some harm. I'm going to use this necessary technology, or at least I believe it to be necessary, and really try to depart from as much of the other as I can. Again, leading back to transition culture, yeah, if I break my arm, I'm going to go to the doctor and have a cast put on it. It just it just makes sense. I'm obviously going to be using this vehicle, uh, the podcast being the vehicle to get out this type of information. W was that all the rules right there? Well, I wouldn't call those the rules, although, I'm, and I'm not trying to pick apart your wording, but I'll call them the guiding principles. There we go. And obviously, each one of those has to be fleshed out for some particulars. You know, those are the broad concepts that we want to go by. But yes, James, those are the 12 of them that we've developed so far as a way to say, this is what we're about. And if this sounds good to you and you want to help make this a reality, not only for us, but potentially as a demonstration for other people, um, then, yeah, get in touch and let's see what we can do. And before we kind of wrap things up, I know that on our last talk that we wanted to discuss 
one of my favorite stories, and I thought it was great that you had actually brought that up to me, is the allegory of the cave. Well, what I'm going to do, James, is to give a really brief version of this, but it's really easy to find online and people can read about it and get the more in-depth version. I just want to give enough of this so that people can understand how this allegory of the cave are, is so <laughs> exactly what rewilding is about right now. Mm -hmm. So this story starts out by imagining that there are these people imprisoned in a cave. And the people are imprisoned in such a way, they've been there since birth, that their heads are actually fixed forward so the only thing they can see are shadows being cast on a wall. And these shadows are being cast on a wall by people who are passing objects in front of a fire that casts over the back and into the front of the people who are imprisoned. And for the people who have been in this cave, seeing these shadows pass on the wall, they know nothing else in their existence. To them, it is reality. In fact, because they can't even turn their heads to see one another who are imprisoned there watching the shadows, the shadows are their reality. But then one day, a prisoner is freed. And this prisoner gets an opportunity to look around the cave and to see the other prisoners, to see the fire, to see the shadows being made by the fire. And of course, it, it's just unbelievable. He, he may have spent or she may have spent decades of their life only witnessing the shadows on the wall. And so the freed prisoner is just having a real emotional dilemma, a psychological dilemma, even an intellectual dilemma with how to interpret all of this. And of course, looking at the fire, the very thing that is creating the light to cast the shadows would hurt the prisoner's eyes. It, it would be just painful to this person to understand it. But then the story goes on and the prisoner is not just freed to be in the cave, but is taken out of the cave and put into the daylight. And anyone who has spent their life in a cave, the daylight would be so bright to them that they would not even be capable of seeing everything around them. And it would take them a long time to adjust and actually gain awareness of what reality actually was. And once they came to understand how wonderful reality was, this outdoor life under the stars and moon and then during the day under the sun with all of this life that they can interact with, they would want everybody to know this and they would run back into the cave to tell everybody. But of course, not a single prisoner would believe them. Not a single prisoner who has only seen shadows on the wall in this cave would believe of this world exists where there is brightness and there is life and there's this exuberance to be had for life. And in fact, they might turn on this messenger and want that message stifled because they would simply not have the capacity the ability to understand the context of how important this message was. And anybody who attempted to drag one of these prisoners out of the cave, the prisoners would fight to remain in the cave because it's all they knew. Well, is that not rewilding? 
Is that not the messengers, the people who talk about rewilding, who are trying to wake people up from this industrial slumber? But the people who have been in this domesticated industrial setting simply right now may not have the education, the awareness, the faculties to fully appreciate how amazing the natural world is around them. I really encourage people to read this allegory of the cave and see how much it applies to the situation that we find ourselves in now, James. How I think of that too, the allegory of the cave, and how I discovered the allegory of the cave actually was through the movie The Matrix. Imagine Neo. You have Neo, he he is in this world, and he knows that there is something wrong, that there's just something not right about this world. And then he encounters someone, a mentor, that would be uh, Morpheus. Morpheus offers him a pill, or that pill would be an option. Do you want to stay in a, re- in a reality that is false, or do you want to take the rabbit hole and see what the real world is about? So you remember that scene where they they release him from the matrix he goes through that crazy tube and gets sucked up by their by their uh by their ship and everything and when he opens his eyes for the first time it's just what you said he says oh my gosh my eyes hurt my eyes hurt and morpheus turns to him and says it's because you've never seen you know yes. and it, and it is exactly that idea those of us who now know about rewilding those who have been offered the opportunity to leave the cave it is now our duty as seeing the quote-unquote truth to go back and relieve or release our fellow our fellow humans. So, I, I think that's I think that's a beautiful way to kind of wrap things up. And Arthur, I, I just I'm really really excited that you got to share this with the community today. And I really hope again to have you on to to talk about other aspects of ancestral health. And I'm really looking forward to this community. And if there's any way that myself or the community can help please let us know. And I, I would love to, to help in any way that's possible. Well, I, I appreciate that, James. Thanks very much. I'm really so happy to be a, a part of the program that you're developing here. I think this is, we need as many messengers as we can have. And I'm really excited that you've decided to uh, take this as your calling. I mean, you're just so much of an inspiration to me that I couldn't think of any other possible way other than to try and get the message out. I mean, I'm so moved by this that this is clearly for me and for others that that um, at least relate with me and my story. This is for them too. So, if you're human, this is for you. Is kind of kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. So your work is extremely extremely important. James, thanks very much, and uh, I'm looking forward to be parting your show again. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. 